Father in heaven, we do thank and praise you for the privilege we have week by week of coming together as your people, as your family, under your word, before you. Thank you that you are a God who loves to speak. And we pray that you would give us ears to hear what it is you are saying. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a theologian that you've probably heard of, a guy called Martin Luther, and one of his big, con- big um, contributions that he brought to the, to the table was to describe with great clarity the distinction between what he called being a theologian of glory and a theologian of the cross. Let me read you a paragraph to try and help you understand something of what that means. As at the heart of this new theology was the notion that God reveals himself under his opposite, or to express this another way, God achieves his intended purposes by doing the exact opposite of that which humans might expect. The supreme example of this is of the cross itself. God triumphs over sin and evil by allowing sin and evil to triumph, apparently, over him. His real strength is demonstrated through apparent weakness. This was the way a theologian of the cross thought about God. The opposite to this was the theologian of glory. In simple terms, the theologian of glory assumed that there was a basic continuity between the way the world is and the way God is. If strength is demonstrated through raw power on earth, then God's strength must be the same, only extended to infinity. To such a theologian, the cross is simply foolishness, a piece of nonsense. Isn't that something, really, of what we've been seeing in 2 Corinthians these last few weeks? Do you remember the story so far in in Corinth? These so-called super-apostles were throwing grenades at Paul. They are theologians of glory. They rely upon worldly wisdom and worldly strength and sounding impressive and looking impressive. And Paul... Well, to use the words of Martin Luther, Paul says he is a theologian of the cross. He is careful as he uses his authority among them. He is cautious about throwing his weight around. We saw that last week. In fact, have a listen to the same author applying this idea to leadership. There will be a link to these articles in Home Group Notes if you're in Home Groups, or if you're not, if you go into the Resources tab and then Home Group Notes, you'll see them there. It goes like this. This argument is explosive, this theologian of glory versus theologian of the cross. It gives us a whole new understanding of Christian authority. Elders, for example, church leaders, are not to be those renowned for throwing their weight around, for badgering others, and for using their position or wealth or credentials to enforce their own opinions. No, the truly Christian leader is the one who devotes his whole life to the painful, inconvenient, and humiliating service of others. For in so doing, he demonstrates Christ-like authority, the kind of authority that Christ himself demonstrated throughout his incarnate life and supremely on the cross at Calvary. And you know, I think what we see this morning as we come to this passage is Paul bringing us a bit more clarity on what it means to be a theologian of the cross, what that looks like, how that works out in reality, particularly in the context of Corinth and some of the stuff going on there. Let's jump straight in. Um, If you're the kind of person who likes to see the structure, then we've got two points. The first one is there on the screen. Um, 2 verse 14 to 16, real ministry brings the smell of life or death. Have a look down at those verses with me. The big image in Paul's mind 
as he writes there, is an image that would have been well understood by the readers in Corinth, but for us they take a bit of thought and unpacking as to what's going on, because we find ourselves in the midst of a, a glorious military victory carnival. It's a joyful, um, triumphant, conquering army returning home in procession. There's jubilation, there's cheering. And yet whilst... Whilst the procession would be largely joyful, actually, in reality, not everybody would be happy. Because actually, there'd be two sorts of people in this carnival. There'd be those excited by the victory, those on the winning team, and yet there'd be those on the losing team as well, those who had been captured, those who had lost everything. And we're not actually sure quite how Paul sees himself in 14 to 16 whether he is conquering or whether he is conquered. Our, our translation actually adds in a few words, I think, in verse 14. Um, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession, I think is the original. The as captives has been added in. Either way, whether we are conquered captives or whether we are conquering victors, Actually, we mustn't miss the fact that Paul starts off verse 14 with, but thanks be to God. And that's striking, because if you look back at 12 and 13, well, he arrives at verse 14 in a bit of a state, in a bit of inner turmoil. There was an open door to preach in Troas, verse 12, but there was no Titus there. And so he has no peace of mind, if you've got an ESV. It's, my spirit was not at rest. He, he leaves for Macedonia with things not quite right. Things haven't panned out as he expected, as he wanted. And yet, despite that context, there's a but in verse 14. But, thanks be to God. He speaks of the truth of Christ's victory, an objective truth to grasp onto in the midst of things not going as we hoped they might. That could be hard to do, can't it? When things don't pan out as we expect them to, we can easily get caught up in all of that, and yet for Paul here, he is still giving thanks to God for Christ's victory. We forget objective truth. But whether we are slaves or whether we are supporters, whatever's going on in 14 to 16... We are on the winning side. The news of the victory is ringing all around. People will hear the sounds and they will know we won. Christ has been victorious. In 15, the, the image develops a bit as well. It morphs almost. In these processions, there would be priests, and as tributes, they would be burning incense. So you can imagine you're, you're in your house at home. Perhaps you haven't come out for the the victory, you've not heard the news yet, and you, there's a distinctive smell in the city, the smell of incense carried on the wind. And maybe before you even hear the noise, before you see the people, you smell incense. You, it's, distinct, it's good news. It, it means we won. Even if you weren't there, you would know the reality of victory. And so Paul says, 15, we are the smell, the aroma of Christ. And that's, that's among everyone, that smell. To those who are being saved and those who are not being saved. Those who have life and those who do not have life, he says. But initially, it's actually God who smells us. We are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ. 
to God, you smell good if you're a believer here this morning. He loves the smell of you because he loves the smell of his son. We are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ. I take it as we, as we love him, as we live for him, as we speak about him, as we are faithful to him and obedient to him, distinctive. So we, we smell a bit like Jesus. And to God, that is good news. As we are joined to him by faith, we are always a pleasing aroma. But actually then, from other people, there's a mixed response. Because Jesus is victorious, it's an either or. Our witness will always divide people. There's no middle ground. Just um, just fast forward a few weeks with me, as we heard a little earlier, we're going to be distributing in- invites to a, an annual community barbecue that we put on around harvest time. Imagine the scene outside the front of Magdalen Road Church, if you can picture it there, and we've cleared it away a bit. Um, there are stacks of burgers on. And on one side, you've got a group of vegetarians. And on the other side, you've got a group of meat eaters, carnivores, And the reaction to the same smell divides people. The two groups react in very different ways to the smell of burger. Well, so, in the passage here, it's a divided reaction for those who are in Christ. Those who are being saved, that is, those whom God is at work in to bring them to faith, well, to them we are an aroma of life, says Paul. And to those who are perishing, that is, those whom God is not currently at work and people he is currently leaving in their rejection of him, then we are an aroma that brings death. And to put it bluntly, as Paul does here, there are always, I take it, those two groups of people, those two types. Our witness will always get a mixed response. And we should expect that there will be some accepting and some rejecting. There will be some attracted and there will be some repelled. I reckon we probably know something of the reality of that, if you're here this morning as a believer, something of the pain of that. Just a a few thoughts of application, if you like, maybe more opportunity to think through them in home groups. But the first one is that authentic gospel ministers always suffer some rejection. And that's okay. Because sometimes we think there's a silver bullet. And yet if the best evangelist in all of history was rejected, killed, then we shouldn't be surprised when we are rejected. That was the way it was for Jesus. That's the way it was for Paul. That will be the way it is for us. As a church family, as individuals, we we ought to expect a level of rejection. It might be hard for us to hear that. But assuming our message has been clear, assuming our witness has been faithful, rejection doesn't mean something has gone wrong. In fact, it may well mean something has gone right. And simply because of who we are, we will face some of that. Because of who we are, we will face some of that with the purchase of our new building. If you're just visiting here, um, and you, that doesn't mean much to you. Come and chat to me after. I'm happy to talk about that. In fact, it already has. 
People don't like us because we are a church. And the fact that we have bought a school building isn't necessarily particularly popular amongst some in our local community. It may not be nice, but actually we're not to be fearful of that. Now, of course, we can be rejected for all the wrong reasons as well. We can be rejected for being blunt and foolish and tactless and unloving and stupid and annoying. Of course we can. But assuming we are witnessing faithfully, assuming we're not being blunt, foolish, tactless, unloving, stupid, annoying, then there will still be some rejection, and we shouldn't be surprised at that or fearful of that. Second thought is, because of the reality of the rejection, we mustn't stop being smelly. We like to be liked, don't we? We like to be accepted. Most of us, generally speaking, are less keen on being rejected. Some of us kind of like that, but we're weird. But the danger is we can water things down and we can be less offensive and therefore less smelly and therefore less likely to be rejected. And of course it takes wisdom and sensitivity in the kind of things that we stand for and the hills that we will die on, so to speak, and different contexts might mean different responses that legitimately mean different responses to people, how we respond and react to different people, but... But maybe like me, you know the reality of... chickening out on a question or a conversation. We don't say what we know we ought to have said because we're cowards. We water it down. And yet verse 16, to the one we are an aroma that brings death and to the other an aroma that brings life. The third thought, um, just to chew on as well, is that there are only two responses. And so I'm acutely aware as we talk about a passage like this, It is very stark. Paul is saying at the end of the day, it is death or life. It is one or the other. And that sounds remarkably unkind. That sounds, in our culture, remarkably arrogant. I get that. We are far too certain and sure and without nuance. And Paul, get with the program. Come on. But that starkness of response was just as Jesus saw it. Without Christ, people are perishing. That ought to wake us from our lethargy. That ought to fuel our prayers in the morning. That each day we will want to be more smelly. We will want the conversations. We will be willing for it to be awkward that we might be an aroma that brings life. And I guess when you put it like that, then you see why Paul ends as he does, verse 16. No? Who is equal to such a task? This kind of ministry is is life-giving, is important, and by ourselves, no, we are not equal to such a task. Actually, we will see Paul will spell out for us all kinds of dead ends that we can get lost down when it comes to gospel ministry, showing in a sense that we are not equal to such a task. And Paul zooms in on those three. So if our first point is real ministry brings the smell of life or death, the second is real ministry is not about serving self. Do you remember in Corinth, this context of opposition, these super apostles, were individuals who had been shaped by the culture of Corinth. And they were squaring up to Paul. 
And they are all about strength and eloquence and rhetoric and theologians of glory. But Paul glories in his weakness because he follows in the footsteps of Jesus. He's prepared to look foolish. He, he knows his message sounds foolish. And so you wonder, as Paul has these dead ends, three of them, whether he's got these guys firmly in his sights. There are sort of jabs on the way past. But I have to say, it is easy to point the finger at them and roll our eyes and think, goodness me, super apostles, Corinthians, theologians of glory. But it's us, isn't it? Isn't it the reality of our hearts? Our hearts daily veer towards self. They daily veer to wanting to sound wise and eloquent and impressive and to be thought of as theologians of glory. Isn't it us? It's that natural inbuilt desire to be served, to be strong, for it to be about us. And so as Paul speaks to them, he speaks to us. The first one is in verse 17. And like so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. In Paul's time as in ours, there were preachers who would do it for the money. They would peddle their wares for finance. For us, it might be on TV or online ministries or people who promise us results and responses and the kind of life we've always wanted, if only we will send them money, make a pledge, whatever it might be. For them, Paul uses the language of peddling the word of God for profit. It's actually the word for corrupt. Paul says he is not the dodgy market trader. He's got the patter and the bold sales pitch, and you get the product, and it's, it's just cheap plastic tat. You've wasted your money. You've been had. It's a dud. And actually, the pedal word, I'm told, comes from the, the wine trade. It was a dodgy and corrupt trader who's diluted the white wine down with water. And so profit is then maximized. You think you've got a nice bottle of wine, but actually it's only three quarters wine. There's a quarter of water they've put in. And so maybe these guys, if they dilute the message, if they raise the popularity, if they get positive responses, then they can make as much income as they want. They serve themselves. The danger of diluting the message. It leaves someone not having really heard what God has said. They think they're okay. They think they're all right with God, but they're not. Which means, in using Paul's language, those who are perishing, who think they are being saved, are not actually being saved. Because the message they've heard is not the message. The contrast is the second half of verse 17. Not peddling the word of God for profit, but rather speaking before God as those sent from God. And, and accountability not to them that they might give you popularity and power, but rather to him. Because he has given you a message and he has sent you. Picture of openness, of vulnerability. The peddlers, their concern is horizontal. What they care about is how people respond what they get out of it, that for Paul it's vertical. It's, it's caring about the God who has sent him and equipped him. Before God has he been faithful. Again, this applies to us because we need to be careful with our content. 
to be faithful with our message. We don't have the right to tweak the message to, to appear a bit more popular or to get more followers. That's not our job. It doesn't mean we just vomit it out over somebody and think, well, I've done my job. I've, I've shared the gospel with them. And that's where we'll see Paul is prayerful and prayed for as he preaches and proclaims. We'll see he seeks to persuade and convince, to answer questions, to answer objections. It's not just a sort of vomiting a message, but engaging with someone with a message from the Lord. There's an accountability that we pass on the message we're meant to. Speaking as those sent from God. So he's not peddling for profit. Secondly, in, um, in chapter 3, 1 to 3, he's not looking for commendation from others. And the picture seems to be that in Corinth there are these in crowds, yeah? You've got self-referential echo chambers. And if X, who is flavor of the month, says you were legit, then you were okay. It sounds a bit like Twitter, to be honest. Well, so here you get wind of letters of recommendation. You get wind of, well, if that person says you're all right, then you're all right. But only if they say you're all right, Paul. And Paul, it seems, is not part of the in crowd, so he's not legit. Paul has not been officially commended by the Corinthians, and so the Corinthians aren't sure what to do with him. Despite him being their spiritual father, despite him spending 18 months with them, despite him evangelizing among them and discipling among them and training them and loving them, well, he's not got a lot of recommendation, so we're not sure we can have you to speak, Paul. Paul says, what are you doing? It makes no sense. You know me. You know that I am legitimate. You know that I am good. How? Well, look at verse 2 to 3. Because you yourselves, Corinthian Christians, are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but... Tablets of human hearts. Do you see, Paul said, I don't need a letter of recommendation, guys. You are my letter of recommendation. It's written on your hearts. It's transformed lives. It's churches planted. It's, it's people turned upside down. You can fake a letter of recommendation. You can't fake that. do we do with letters of recommendation? Some churches still use similar things today. You know, an unknown preacher turns up and you're not sure if you can trust them. Well, a letter from their home church or their network or whoever it is authenticates them in some, in some sense. There's nothing wrong with that. Or even, what about the reviews and recommendations in Christian books sometimes? Man, you, you, you read the first few pages, it feels like the whole chapter is... Every theologian or pastor telling you you should read this and how faithful these people are. I'm not quite sure what's going on there. Sometimes I wonder if the, the whole strategy of the marketing publishing industry is made up of that. What do we make of this kind of thing? Well, I think helping us to see whether someone is, is trustworthy, even if we don't know them, is helpful. But it can go too far, can't it? What matters more... What matters more is not what people say about them, but the reality of their ministry. What matters more is not their reputation from afar, but actually getting into their lives, seeing what God has done through them, the reality of changed lives. The fruit of faithfulness ought to trump endorsements from some sort of Christian celebrity that hardly anyone's ever heard of, but our flavor of the month. 
I think for Paul here, the issue is more about context. Why do they need something from him? They know him. They know he is good. They know they can trust him. They know the reality of God at work through him and his message. They've seen him up close for 18 months. They don't need a letter from someone. Actually, the language he uses in verse 3 is, um, is language of what ministry of the new covenant looks like. And we will touch on it today. Dave will pick it up next week and take it forward for the next couple of weeks. The language is not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. It's, it's an internal authentication that comes from God living in someone, his message being made alive in their hearts. Seems to be referring to Jeremiah 31. God's law internalized. His spirit comes to live in us, bringing us to life, changing us, transforming us. And the old covenant was all external and about tablets of stone, now internal human hearts. And because of this, because Paul has, has ministered faithfully and they have been transformed, why do they need a letter? And yet maybe you think, well, come on, Paul. You're sounding quite bold there. You seem to be throwing your weight around slightly, boasting in your fruit, perhaps. Are you arrogant, overconfident? Well, I take it verse 4. He's aware of that, and he heads them off at the pass. You see, verse 4, that confidence, that commendation, that competence doesn't come from himself, but no, it, it comes from Christ. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. And that seems to be a third dead end as well, that they seem to be, verse 4 to 6, claiming some kind of self-competence. Can you have a look down at 5 to 6, and you wonder, and we saw it last week and the week before, there's this sort of boasting culture. In a world where it's all about the horizontal and how you are perceived, how you sit on the ladder compared to other people, then of course we're going to be boasting and putting others down. But Paul says this, look, do you see verse 5? Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. I take it that is a challenge for some of us because we feel competent and able and strong. And words like that, verses like that, pop our pride. And we think, actually, God's, God's quite lucky to have me on the team, I think, really. I'm, uh, I'm not bad at this church stuff. Pretty gifted. I mean, look at, look at the track record behind me. Look at the things I've been asked to do. Look at the way people come to me for wisdom when it comes in Bible studies. Look at my collection of commendation letters. They're unrivaled. But Paul says, no, 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 our confidence comes through Christ before God, because we are joined to him by faith. But for some of us, it's an encouragement as well, because we feel inadequate and, and a bit frazzled. No, it is he who has made us competent. It is he who equips us. It is he who uses people even like us. Think of our new trainees of, of Hannah and Umbali. You look ahead to this next year. He has made you competent. 
or our elders at the moment, often overstretched, overstretched. He has made us competent. We trust him. Or home group leaders, so often overwhelmed and aware of pastoral needs. He has made us confident. Or for the folk out there now, or who are often out there now, who, who labor in junior church looking after the next generation, preparing them for life in a hostile world, an increasingly hostile world. He makes us competent. Or all of us, just in the reality of day-to-day life, as we witness as believers, as we're not quite sure we can cope with the increasing pressure of going against our culture, of where we stick out even more, perhaps, where it feels like we're going down the stairs and everybody else is coming up the stairs past us and we just feel like we're in the way and we're like a sore thumb. When we're aware of being an aroma of death, he makes us competent. It's a humble confidence because of our God. There'll be more next week, but just as we finish, um, have a look in at verse 6 as well. As we dig deeper into this new covenant ministry, as, as perhaps we do look ahead at our calendar for the coming week and we think, it's not looking easy. Well, take confidence that it is the Spirit who gives life. It is God's Spirit who gives life. This is the new covenant promise. It's not about letters and law anymore. It's about the Spirit that he pours out. It's his Spirit's work in our hearts. God himself is at work in and through us, calling his people to himself. And if that's true, as you think through this next week and you think, okay, there are going to be people that I see. There will be people that I know I'm going to see and people I don't know I'm going to see. There will be meetings that I might have. There will be difficult conversations that I'm not looking forward to. There are people I'm looking forward to seeing and those I'm not looking forward to seeing. And I feel a bit anxious about X and Y and Z. Well, remember verse 6. He makes us competent. And it's his spirit that gives life. He doesn't send us out on our own to do it. The things that make us fearful. No, no, no. His spirit gives life. Let me pray for us, then we'll sing. Lord, we confess. We confess that we can so easily get this wrong. We confess that we we don't often want to be an aroma of death to those around us. And so we keep quiet when we ought not keep quiet. We don't say what we ought to say. Perhaps even we don't live in the way that we know we ought to live because, because we're fearful of being rejected. And so we pray that you would help us to to follow in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus. Guard us, please, from being Corinthian in the way we do life. Guard us from serving self. As Paul speaks of here, from peddling for profit, looking for commendation from others, claiming self-competence, would we be those who look to you? Guard us, please, from horizontal comparisons 
from finding our identity in others and how we are perceived rather than in you and what you think of us. In Jesus' name we pray for his glory. Amen.